Recently, I was a guest on Rachel Kennerly's Just Add Liberty podcast. We chatted about saving money by utilizing the less obvious items of foods in your kitchen, uh, a little bit of banter between friends, and of course, a cooking lesson or two thrown in just for good measure. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 127. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here with the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Teach your kids cooking skills, which also means math skills, following directions and orders of operations, patience, delayed gratification, and cleaning up with a subscription to Radish. That's Rad Dish. Radish sends real recipes for little hands each month, and the food is good. My daughter loves her special recipe folders, which are lined up next to my cookbooks. Use my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash radishkids to sign up. That's culinarylibertarian.com slash R-A-D-D-I-S-H-K-I-D-S. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. A few months ago, I was a guest on Rachel Kennerly's Just Add Liberty podcast. She heard the show about Julia Child and First Principles and the chef who screamed about the asparagus trim in the trash. So we discussed what to do with that and some other less obvious kitchen stuff normally seen as trash and summarily thrown away. Well, there's something to do with most of that stuff. And here we are. Here's the show to find out what. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Just Add Liberty. Thank you once again for joining me today. We are on the mad dash, the final stretch of the Christmas season. It's four days away. Is that insane to think that 2020 is almost over? It's kind of a blessing and a curse. 2020 will finally be over, but... Who knows what 2021 holds in store? There are cities that are locked down yet again, and there seems to be no end in sight to the tyranny that we're experiencing in 2020. It's just going to go right on into 2021. But I guess on the plus side is that we get a brand new start at the year on January the 1st. And y'all better be eating your black-eyed peas and what is the other thing that hog jowl? Black-eyed peas and hog jowl, is that what it is for good luck? I don't think nearly enough Southerners ate that in 2020. So you better start chomping away for 2021. And on the topic of eating, I invited my good friend Dan Reed, who is also known as the Culinary Libertarian, on today to talk about 
food waste and what we can do with stuff that we would normally just throw in the garbage. So I'm going to call today's episode, Don't Throw That Away, Free Food. Now, The Culinary Libertarian is not just a podcast. It's also a blog where Dan posts recipes and blog posts about food-related topics. And he recently added a new feather to his cap. He is the author of a brand new book called Cooking for Comfort. Dan, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. You and I have been friends, and so it's kind of cool to be able to talk to somebody that I'm friends with, and I feel like we could probably riff on a few things, but I wanted to have more of a directed conversation. I was listening to an episode of yours the other day, and you were talking about you know, first principles, and you mentioned in that podcast about you know how margins are so thin in restaurants that the margins are kind of won or lost in the trash can. I'm thinking, well, that's kind of gross. And what you meant by that is that a lot of the waste, you know, if you've got a lot of waste going out in your garbage can, instead of repurposing some of those things, you're losing a lot of money in the restaurant business. So I wanted to talk to you about ways that we as home cooks, home chefs, since many of us are doing a lot more cooking at home these days than we did, I don't know, nine months ago, about ways that we can repurpose things that we probably just throw away and think, well, that's just garbage. I'm going to put it in the compost, put it in the trash can. And so wanted to have you on to talk about that, and maybe we can be a little more efficient in our home kitchen. You're right that it does sound gross. So the, the, the first point, the, the point of the story you're talking about was uh, the chef was looking in the garbage can and saw this asparagus trim. Well, the first point was that it should never have made it the garbage can. So in the restaurant world, there were several failures of managing this employee who and, and the cooks next to him, and then <laughs> the, the number of cooks that had to go past to get in the can was probably as much his frustration as this money is in the can. It doesn't look like currency. You can't spend anything, but you can turn it into a $5 bowl of soup. That's what I was surprised to hear you say is you can take those asparagus trimmings and actually turn it into soup. And I'm like, who knew? I just chop them off and toss them in the can. Well, and lots of people do. So the, the white parts at the bottom... Uh, if you've ever seen, uh, this might be the time of year to see it. It's called, it's white asparagus. It's a little bit fatter. And the way that they make it white is they keep pushing the pile of dirt higher and higher and higher onto the asparagus. So the sunlight never activates the chlorophyll. It tastes mostly the same, except the big difference is that it is, prof well, I like it, but it's very, very bitter. Lots of people don't like bitter things if they can taste them. Uh, so white asparagus is, it gets frou-frou and fancy and they and people generally think, you know, ooh, fine French cuisine. Well, people like it anyway. So it's served with say like an, an orange hollandaise, an orange mayonnaise, because the acid of the orange is gonna help cut the, the bitterness of the asparagus and it's a classic combination flavor. So the white part you throw away has a bitterness to it. That part is absolutely true. The green peels will have flavor. They don't, you know, peels. Someone's listening to this saying, what is he talking about? Peeling asparagus, this is insanity. Who would do this? The little teeny ones that are nice and tender that are about the size of a pencil are, well, pencil asparagus. Sometimes they get really fat. They might be as fat as the thumb. They might even be bigger, or getting close to maybe like a nickel size. The peel on that, the outside part of that is really woody. 
And as it gets closer to the bottom of the stalk, it, 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 it doesn't cook, it's, it's cellulose. There's nothing you can do to it to make it be not woody, except peel it off of the vegetable peeler. Now, peeling asparagus can be a irritating task because <laughs> there's lots of ways for it to not play nice. Yeah. The stem will break, doesn't want to turn right, you, you peel it right in half, lots of things can go wrong. But once you have these peels that you can't eat, there's still flavor there. So we've gone through a whole lot of work at home to make this asparagus edible. And now we have this, this bowl full of stuff that looks like garbage. One of the key problems with managing waste at the home kitchen is, do you have enough to do something with it? Right, right. Because you don't have the same volume at home. You're cooking for four or five people, not hundreds. Right. And maybe you're cooking at home for yourself. It's like, there's no <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, that's even worse. Now, what do you do? Do you, you blanch it, then freeze it, and then six months later, you add to that spirit? That's not a reasonable response to a problem. If you're cooking for one and you're peeling four asparagus, if you're peeling them at all, nobody eats four asparagus, 16 asparagus. Uh, this, this is a different, there's just make soup from the whole thing maybe. Uh, but for the, the homes that, and the kitchens that do a lot of cooking, and this is part of what's necessary first to use up your, st your stuff is you've got to be a house that cooks. If you cook once in a while, and you because your job, you're either getting the packets from the, from the box from those um, subscription clubs or whatever your solution is. If you're not cooking a lot at home, waste is just going to be something that fills the bin. That's just how that goes. Yeah. If you are doing cooking at home, and so you've bought five or six bunches of asparagus or even three, now you can make a soup. So what do we do with this asparagus? Well. Bitter is mitigated by acid, so we can make an asparagus soup with either lemon uh, zest in the saute of veggies, which would really, really be nice. The other thing that's going to create uh, an acid for us is adding the onions, sweating them down with butter. Sweating is a, Probably most people know, but sauteing means cooking in high heat. The word saute means to jump. So your food's jumping out of the pan because it's so hot. Sweating is cooking a little bit lower heat uh, where the, and also uh, instead of one layer of stuff in the pan, you have kind of a, a little mound. And so as the stuff on the bottom of the pan starts to break down, it's releasing water. The water's turning to steam. The sweating part means as the steam is rising up through that food, celery, onions, carrots, fennel, whatever you got, the steam is helping cook the vegetables above it. That's what sweating means. Okay, that also, makes sense. It's also a way to not get color. And in some cases, not getting caramel is an advantage. So we would not want a asparagus soup with too much caramel, for example. So add your asparagus trim, let the heat remove the flavor. You're going to start to smell the aroma. And one of the first principles I talked about in that episode was in, in my complaints, which I remedied in my cookbook, is when you're reading a recipe, the recipe may read, cook this thing for one minute. How does a cookbook author know that about your house and your stove and your quantity of stuff? There's no way. 
can't possibly know that. So the, the time element becomes not a useful thing because if you're following the directions and it burns in one minute, well, but that's what the rest, that's what the words on the page said. You're not being, you're not an inattentive cook. You're paying attention to what the instructions were because you're trying to learn the recipe, but you're not learning anything. I've changed that dynamic to now put the food in the pan. And when you smell the aroma of the food, now you need to do the next thing. And now the next thing is going to be whatever the step is. Generally, it's going to be add something that's in the form of water or adds tomatoes, mushrooms, stock is literally water. But what we want to have happen in the process of making this asparagus soup, if we're getting to the point where we're smelling the asparagus, the next step is add something. Because what we're doing is this is just like basic temperature math. If the pan is 350 degrees and we have something 70 degrees, we're lowering that 350 degrees. We're stopping that high heat from doing the thing it was doing, which we didn't want. And now we have what we've done by adding this extra ingredient, lowering the temperature. We're also adding time, minutes on the clock, because now we have some, we have some luxury here of time to finish the cooking or continue the cooking. Uh, you never get that from cook for one minute. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and I'll be honest with you, I am my mother-in-law can go in and wing it. And I have to follow the recipe. I just I, I'm not creative in the kitchen. I I have to follow the recipe. I, I can't just say, well, I'll add a little of this or a little of that, and it turns out terrible. So I, I'm I'm one that really has to follow the recipe. So it's it's good that you spell it out for folks like me who are who are not naturals in the kitchen. I'm not sure that I, yes, I understand what you're saying. I don't know that anybody's a natural in the kitchen. Uh, and I think that a lot of people would self-identify as probably being more like you than not, where they depend on the information on the page to start doing something with success. So the, the first principle that I talked about on that episode, which was about Julia Child and her chief complaint as she began her culinary teaching career, well, which started as a culinary cooking career, was the recipes may lead to a successful completion of that dish, but when you're done with it, you haven't obtained any knowledge. You've gotten a tasty plate of food, and that's maybe the end result for most people. But if you haven't learned how to cook, if you haven't obtained a skill to use in the next recipe you make, then her thinking, and I share that thought, is that that recipe writer, that author has failed his audience. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I, I think a lot of us just kind of go through life, just say, okay, that's what the recipe says, and don't really take time to actually learn especially if you don't spend a lot of time in the kitchen. Now we cook fairly often, but my mother-in-law does a lot of that. So, And she, I think I know this, but go ahead and tell me what is her cultural heritage? Southern. <laughs> oh man. So she there's can some... make, she can make biscuits like you would not believe Dan. The, the place where we live now, it used to be a, a bed and breakfast. She had all kinds of breakfast that she did. She would do a full country breakfast pan, with biscuits, uh, fried pork tenderloin. 
She can do uh, her pancakes are amazing. Buttermilk pancakes. I mean, once you, which I'm sure your girls are the same way. Once you've eaten Nana's pancakes, you can't go to IHOP and eat pancakes anymore because they're just terrible. They're flavorless and they're flat and dense and no good. Teas. Well, isn't is it a tease as much as it is an observation that at some point they're going to go to somebody else's house and get something that they recognize in words. Yeah. And when it arrives, it's it's not going to be what they expected. One of my son's friends stayed with us, stayed the night a few months, or I guess a few weeks ago. While my mother-in-law was gone, well, she had made us up, uh, put the ingredients together for pancakes. And so we just had to add egg and I guess oil. I can't remember. I'm sure it's egg, oil, and buttermilk. And so I made buttermilk pancakes for the boys for breakfast. And he he went home to his mom and she, I guess she made pancakes the next week or a couple of weeks later. And he said, mom, he said, your pancakes aren't as good as Rachel's. <laughs> And I said, those aren't my pancakes. Those are Nanny's pancakes. <laughs> well, you know, that's so that's a testament to Nanny, but that's mm-hmm. also the kind of thing that happens. And there's in, in pancakes, there's there are so many ways to succeed and to get a great pancake. And I've I've gotten to the point of doing a pretty decent almond flour, which is both keto, I guess keto automatically means it's also gluten-free, but it's gluten-free and a keto pancake, which we like. Some gluten-free stuff requires a little bit more tolerance, but this almond pancake is pretty good. I'm going to have to get that recipe from you because I'm I'm really, it's like, if I can't have my mother-in-law's pancakes, I just won't do pancakes. And if it's, if it's keto pancakes, most of those are just awful. And I'm like, well, I'll just... I'll just eat bacon and eggs and skip the whole pancake thing. It might actually be on the link or on the uh, on the blog. If it is, mm-hmm. I'll send you a link and you can put it on the show notes page. Okay, and perfect. I'll send it to you and you all just have to wait. Perfect. So we've gotten through asparagus. Well, I guess we haven't gotten through it, but we've we said, hey, don't if you're cooking a lot of asparagus, which when we make asparagus, we make a pretty good sized batch of it. So we're chopping off a lot of those ends. And I, I think given the volume of asparagus we eat here, we could probably actually do some asparagus soup. I sent you a list of things and I wanted to kind of go through it with you if you've, if you've had a chance to look at it. I did. Of just, just some things that, that I normally in my own kitchen, I'm like, I'm just going to chuck that. And I didn't know if you had some ideas for, yeah, you can repurpose that or no, it, it, it really truly is garbage. And so we've mentioned asparagus stalks or the ends of asparagus, the white ends. What about like uh, like onion? You know, you, you cut some little tiny thing off onion. There's probably not a whole lot you can do with that other than just throw it away, right? Well, yeah, but I'm going to tell you there's a different way to cut the onion to minimize loss even further. Okay. Most people put the onion on the table and the root end and the stem end are horizontal to the cutting board and they take a knife and they whack off some portions straight down. And then there's this disc of onion stuff. Well, what do you do with that? Well, most people throw that away. So what we do, because this is, so think back to you doing an onion, what, once or twice a week at home, if that, when you're in, when you're in a restaurant, onions are going into everything. So we're clear. We have the cook's, we have some helpers sometimes cleaning 
bags of onions at a time to keep them in the in pails in the walk-in, just so the cooks are a little bit faster. So we take the onion and set it either stem end or root end up with a sharp paring knife. Now, there is a sharp is important, folks. Don't have dull knives. Uh, at an angle, you're going to sort of core out, you're going to cut, like, imagine how you would cut the core out of a tomato. Do that same kind of cutting motion on the stem end and on the root end of your onion. You're going to get much less white part that you, you can trim it off, but really you, that's waste to me. That's going in the compost. But now I have left more onion on the part I'm going to peel. Onion peels, there's nothing to do with onion peels. That's onion peels garbage. Or you can, you know, make the kids write a note to make <laughs> kids write a note to Anna. Um, but now you have a, a little bit more onion. That doesn't sound like a big deal at home. It isn't required, but when you're going through a 50-pound bag of onions, maybe four of those in a week, doesn't take very long before you add up enough of onion stuff before you're throwing away a bag of onions. And and this is what the phrase means we live in on the margins if you're throwing product into the garbage can that's going to accumulate to a case or a bag of that product well if onions are 25 dollars a bag i don't think they are but it doesn't matter that's 25 dollars of cash you you at some point in time you've bought a bag of onions just to throw it away same thing with the asparagus. If you're not saving the asparagus from turning it into a bowl of soup, you've thrown away a case of two of asparagus at $35 or $40 a case, then $25 a bag for onions, and the thing for celery, you, your produce bill is going to kill you. Like, well, that's where this makes a big difference. So what do you do at home is you cut less off of your onion. What does that mean to you? It means you're buying fewer onions over the course of your shopping experience. You're using your currency for other resources, higher priority of other things you really want to have. Maybe you get an extra, an extra quart of milk, make that asparagus soup, or make ice cream because Christmas is coming. You need to make ice cream. So onion skins, probably nothing to use. Celery ends is probably the classic thing that people see that celery and they just whoop, lop just off. whack it off, yeah. Two inches at the bottom. Same thing there. At some point, a case of celery is going in the garbage. But it's not pretty. True. It isn't pretty. Might have sand in it. Well, you may have to wash it. So uh, inside, so the very brown scabby end on the bottom of the celery, well, that's trash. If you peel away all of the stems off of a celery head, what you get to at the very middle is this really pretty little light green hard of the celery, and it's sitting on this little knob. That little knob at the bottom of the celery is delicious. It is it had yes, it has a slightly different celery flavor, has no strings, and it's an amazing flavor for anything you want to put celery in. Uh, you have to wash the little woody ends of the celery off to get the sand off. But now you don't waste so much celery. Yeah, That's I always good. like that that little celery in the middle because it's not awesome. as hard and it seems more it seems to have a bit more flavor than like normal celery. What well, has a a subtler celery flavor. It's not mm -hmm. quite that that outside the cellulose. So cellulose is Functionally, it's wood fiber. 
It's the thing in carrots that make them hard and parsnips is the thing that's in the strings on the celery and the strings on the fennel. It's even in onions, but in onions, it cooks down really rapidly, mm-hmm. which is why if you put, uh, so the, the French term for the mix of carrots and celery and onions is mirepoix. Of those three things, carrots and celery and onions, they don't all cook at the same rate. Most books will say add onions first so you get caramel. Problem with doing that is the onions have all of this water. It's pretty easily available. A lot of it turns to steam. What is left behind are the sugars. And we see either your pan's too hot and you've gone from white onion to burn or some stage of caramel. That caramel is flavor and there's nothing wrong with that part. If you add the carrots next, the onions are going to continue to brown. You're not stopping that process from happening, but the carrots have no chance of catching up. If you change your order, do the carrots first, because the cellulose is much more dense. The water's still there, but you've got to you've got to let the heat really break down that cellulose before the water comes out, and then the sugars and carrots are loaded with sugar, but you have to find a way to get to that. Do those first, then the celery and the onions. Now you have a really good base of caramel. Caramelized carrots have a much nicer, more mellow flavor for your beef stews and your dark soups and stews. That's like, wow. How do, one small change changes your entire flavor experience on what you end up making. Yeah, because most of the time when I see recipes, they always want you to to caramelize your onions first. And you're right. Carrots, you put it, they take so much longer to cook. They're so much thicker. Well, the flavor of that fresh carrot, now if you're making fresh carrot soup, that's fine. Making fresh carrot, whatever, maybe making carrot juice. But the, so think about the flavor of the carrot you eat, say in grated in tuna salad or grated in say carrot and raisin salad, then the flavor of the carrot from a good pot roast. That slow cook, beefy, sweet, earthy carrot, that's a great flavor. And if you're making a beef soup, man, you really look forward to that flavor. That fresh, not good, it's a muted flavor, but that, I, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It's an, it, it meets the expectations of all the other stuff that's in there. And that fresh carrot just sort of jumps out. It's like, wait a minute, what are you doing here? You're an interloper. So we want to, depending on, so this is one of those things. You say that you need to follow the recipe, and if the recipe is not giving you sound advice, the cook who's following the recipe to the letter produces the dish as written, and that cook may have an expectation that it's going to be like grandma made it, and grandma happens to do carrots first. And this person is going to say, see, I told you I can't cook. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But And there's no real reason the cook should, like, I, I can't paint. You can't, I'm not Bob Ross. I, there's no way, I, I, I don't make happy looking clouds. I make sad looking clouds and they don't want any friends. But, but Bob was really good about encouraging his viewers to do the best job that they could. And like painting, like wood carving, there is a learning curve and a skill, a carving curve that is necessary before even even the person feels some sense of competence and accomplishment. 
So if your first goal as a person who doesn't bake is to go take out making puff pastry and then decide, because this is a very challenging dough, see, I told you I can't bake. Well, that's like saying you got your learner's permit last week and you're going to drive Le Mans and you had a crash. Well, <laughs> we can't be surprised about that because there's a skill that hasn't been obtained. Yeah. I can remember the first time I tried to fry bacon. That was a colossal failure. I, I guess I had my, it, it looked so easy when my mom and dad did it and I threw some bacon in a pan. I, I'm sure I have the pan too hot because it got burnt. And then on bacon, it still cooks even after you take it out of the pan. Yep. So, um, yeah, it went, it got, it was so done. Of course, my mom probably ate it because she likes burned stuff. My mother liked burned popcorn. It was the strangest Ugh. thing. I mean, not a lot, but if you, you know how sometimes back in the olden days, before I had those little spinny things, you had to shake the whole house just to make the pan move. Well, every once in a while, one would burn and she loved, oh God, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's all yours. Here, nobody else wants it. Have nobody at it. Else. That's funny. Also on my list was like carrot peelings and carrot tops when you're, is there anything you can do with those? Well, we're, you couldn't. <laughs> or is it kind of the same principle where you kind of pair it, you know, do it like you do a tomato? Well, so just chopping it carrot, off. I don't peel carrots. Okay. You wash them. I wash them off. So one, we were all told, and I'm not actually sure this is true, that all the vitamins and nutrients are right under the skin. I, th I think that was a ruse. And I don't know that it's true or not. But if it is, then don't peel it off. Give your carrots a little bit of a wash. What are, what could possibly be made that some carrot skin would be unappealing visually? If it's going in a soup or a stew, you're not going to see it. If it's going in carrot and raisin salad, it's going to be mayonnaise. You're not going to see it. There's no place that that's going to end up that you're not going to see it. And if you do see it, you just know that it's a clean piece of carrot because you washed it. So don't even make waste in the first place. Save yourself some time. Don't, don't peel your carrots. Uh, as far as if you're buying the stuff in the bag, the cell carrots, I don't know that there's a lot to do with the end. Might have some dirt left in there that if you're, you, the little, the little teeny very ends of the celery that have dirt packed in that doesn't want to wash out or the tops of the parsnip or the tops of the carrot where there might be dirt there, that isn't worth putting into a stock. If you're at it, and we'll go back to Julia. Julia's claim for stock, and she wasn't wrong, is the quality of your stock is going to be as good as the weakest thing you put into that. That's not an uncommon thought for anything. But if you're, if you're spending all the money on great bones, uh, as Scoffier said, even for uh, a beef stock to add some meat to that because it does serve a purpose of helping clarify, uh, clear, make the, make the stock clear, uh, if you spend all the money on that and then you put dirty pieces of produce in your stock, well, you've, you've just, ah, why would yeah, you do you've ruined that? it. So if, if it's actually legitimately trash, if there's nothing to do with it, then throw it away. But let's not make more than we need to. So parsnips and carrots, I don't peel them. Okay. Uh, one of the things on your list was broccoli stems. Mm -hmm. And this is... Uh, if you buy, sometimes they call them the crowns in the store, which is yep. cut off just at the top where the branches start to come out. Mm -hmm. Now, my kids are like uh, Jack Spratt and his wife. 
one loves the tops, one loves the stems. Well, that so works I, out perfectly. It does work out perfectly. But if you buy this, the broccoli that has that two or three or four inches of stem on it, you think, well, what do we do with this? Yeah. I well, just chop it off and throw it in the garbage. The inside Because I can't part, even give it to the chickens. It's too hard. They can't chew it up. The outside is very, very tough. Loaded with cellulose. But if you can, so cut it in half. It's kind of easy to manage. And if you can either put the cut end, stand it up on the cutting board, and you can see where the cellulose fiber is inside, cut that part off. What's inside is tender and great broccoli flavor. Now, I, I peel all the skin off, cut them into little sticks, and that gets steamed for the one who eats the stems, and then the crowns go to the other one. You can also use the stems once you peel them as uh, in the sofrito for risotto. Normally you're gonna put uh, celery and onions in the beginning of your risotto. You can, it's no risotto police. You can get anything you want to in the beginning. You can add carrots in there. But that broccoli in the beginning adds a really deep layer of broccoli into everybody's risotto. And then you have a little bit of the garnish of the pretty green stuff at the end. So nice way to use it up. And, and here you are again. If you're at a point where you can't buy just the crowns and you're forced to get the stem, you say, oh, what am I going to do with this? Well, you've got to get a little bit of a waste. That cellulose, nobody can eat that. If the chickens won't eat that part, well, then that's a compost thing. If you have lots of it, now nah, we can make a soup out of it. But that's a lot of broccoli trim. Right. Yeah, probably far more than what your ordinary home chef would have laying around. Probably so. Now, what about like, you know, so because sometimes I'll do a pot roast and they'll be, I don't do this all the time, but if there's like a ton of fat, especially pork roast, because a lot of pork roast will have just a ton of fat on it. And so I'll trim some of that off before I put it in the crock pot. Is there anything you can do with that, like freeze it and save it for later? Or is, is it okay just to give it to my dog and not feel bad about wasting it? Well, I don't know enough about doggy DNA and biology to say yes or no to that, but I'm going to suggest that don't trim it off. Let the whole thing cook in the pot roast. And when you're done and you lift the meat out of it to then whatever is left, if you don't want that fat, that can be pulled off. But what you have in the, in your juice and your bracing liquid and all that fat that comes to the top, save that, skim it off. And what do you do with it after you save it? I cook with it. Okay. I have chicken fat and pork fat and bacon fat and beef fat all on my refrigerator because at some point I'm going to cook something that I want that flavor with. Save it in a mason jar. So what would you use? Say you make a pork roast. You got a ton of grease on the top. You save that pork fat. So what would you turn around and use it for? What, what would you use that to cook with later? Or what would you cook with that? Uh, eggs every morning. Okay. I mean, we do that with bacon grease because I, I kind of like bacon grease flavor. Yeah. Pancake, uh, not pancakes. Taste, well, I like yourself. pancakes. Not a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Bacon grease. I like bacon grease flavored eggs. Yeah. But I've never saved pork fat to to do that with it. That's, so that's an interesting. Yeah. But any anywhere you would use. So I don't use, with the exception of olive oil, I don't use any liquid at room temperature oil. Everything is, it's either coconut oil, which is plant, obviously, uh, olive oil, or everything else is, 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 is animal, including butter. 
So wherever, wherever you think that flavor compatibility would go, say you're making hamburgers and you got the grill out and you want to saute some onions and mushrooms together, well, take some of that beef fat you have in the cooler. That beef fat flavor on the onions and mushrooms on that burger is going to be a great complement. Uh, or anywhere you want the complements of flavors to be with whatever you're serving. That's what I use it for. And I go through bacon fat faster than I can make it. So that's where that pork fat comes in is um, um, even if you're sauteing, um, you know, if, if Nana's frying her pork tenderloins, save the, fry the pork tenderloins and the pork fat. Now, let me ask you this. Do you have to worry about the temperature that you're cooking on when you're using an animal fat versus, you know, like vegetable oil? Is it a different temperature that you would have your stovetop on? No, because I. Well, of course, you probably a good, have a gas stove, don't you? I wish I did. When we oh, moved really? the, the owners redid the kitchen and they put in just an atrocious electric stove with. Me, I with would buttons. not have ever imagined in my wildest dreams that Dan Reed would be cooking on an electric range. No. Well, it's what they got. We, we bought the <laughs> electric range, got the house included. There you go. We don't always get everything we want, but that's true. That's true. And it's costs a fortune to put gas into a house because we're, we're, we're in the same position here. We have a, which I've only, it, it, it's, it's quite a skill to move from an electric range to a gas range to kind of figure that out. And then vice versa, you know, go back. Um, so we, we had looked at maybe putting in a gas line, but it was going to, there's not a gas line existing in the house. So it's going to cost thousands of dollars to do it. We have an advantage there. There's gas in the house for the hot water heater. Oh, okay. So I had the end for the uh, for the heater too, but mm-hmm. um, I, th- I th- this is a really good question, and this is something that just I got used to just having hot pans mm-hmm. and restaurant cooks cooking from five to nine or six to nine or five to 10 or whatever it is, there's hours and hours and hours of, of smoke and grease and stuff happening, but that's part of the job. And so that we, we don't think about that. And when we get home and we turn the whole kitchen, it looks like a, like, what, what'd you do here? This is a mess. The fire alarms <laughs> are going off. The floors are slippery at the counter. There's grease all over the house. And having a cold pan doesn't change that. Grease is going to go everywhere. What our house has a awful ventilation system, just terrible. It's got the little venti things underneath the microwave that blow into the kitchen. <laughs> right. Well, we things. don't even have like we don't even have above our stove. We don't even have ventilation above our stove. It's wow. on the other side of the kitchen. Nice. Well, so the the high heat in a pan. The, the principal purpose for doing that. So how do you measure high heat? Well, put your finger in it. No, I'm teasing. Don't do that. <laughs> um, smoke is your visual clue. Now, if it's rolling white smoke, that's too hot. So take the pan off the burner. But as you, as your pan gets warm and as you put either that glob of bacon fat or pour in some olive oil, depending how hot it is, you'll see the oil will behave differently at higher temperatures. Put olive oil into a cold pan, it just sort of sits there. Put olive oil into a medium pan, it starts to move around and easily spreads out. Put into a hot pan and it starts to have weird, funny 
heat lines, sort of like looking at the hot uh, asphalt in the middle of a hot Texas day, you see these weird things. And the, so the oil will be, you can, your eyeballs will help you determine if the pan's hot. If you start seeing a little bit of smoke coming up from any of the fat you put in there, that's a hot pan. The reason that's important, especially for meat, is that will help ensure the meat doesn't stick. Okay. Put meat into a gold pan, and man, you're going to need a hammer and chills to get it out of there. Right. Plus, it gets soggy, too, doesn't it? Plus, it gets soggy. You don't get a sear, and sear doesn't keep in the juices. Mm-hmm. It's a fun myth. Sear tastes good yeah like that flavor and that's why we do it and if you can't get the sear on the meat then you you're missing out on both the crunch of the especially if it's a burger that good sear on a burger that crunchy bits on the outside man that's nice that's fun to eat so you don't get that it's a disappointment but also it helps make cleanup easier in the pan now the problem is that a high heat and water from whatever you're putting in the pan, well, they're not big friends. So they make splatters and there's grease everywhere. That's not the reason not to have a hot pan. Just because you want to clean kitchen? <laughs> well, you, yeah, it's you're going to clean something. You may as well get good flavor and then clean afterward. There you go. Well, one other thing that people might have recently put in the garbage that I actually saved mine this year is uh, if they cooked a turkey for Thanksgiving, well, now you've got this, you know, the bones from the turkey. And I saved mine because I thought, well, maybe I'll make a, a turkey stock out of that because, you know, bone stock is like a big thing now. So is that uh, is that something that, that you would recommend for po- people who have like a ham bone or have a turkey carcass that they don't want to just chuck? Yes, absolutely. And I did that exact thing. I had some turkey stock hanging around. It was in the freezer. And so I thawed that, used that to make the gravy. And the leftover stock went into the stock from the carcass to make more stock. Now, that's one of, so I mentioned that guy, Escoffier, for people who don't know who that is. He was sort of the master, the, the, the guy who codified all of French cooking into some, some procedures. And one of the best ways to make good stock is make it with good stock add that as your water and you enrich what you've got and make a fantastic stock so yes i would use uh if you if i cut the wing the first two joints off because i don't want them i want to deal with them in the oven because they just burn so i roast that as part of uh with the neck to get some flavor for the stock Mm -hmm. but definitely put the carcass in there um save the leg bone save the thigh bone from the turkey because it's kind of big enough it's kind of gave you some flavor you don't need to cook that stock too long but absolutely if you've got uh, a ham bone and it's winter time turn around and make split pea soup okay or any kind of a dry bean soup with the ham bone in there that flavor is going to be oh man what a great accompaniment to a to a bean soup so like some navy beans or something like that Navy beans, gray northern beans, kidney beans, black-eyed peas, um, black beans, whatever you got. It does it just it's gonna help whatever it is. Well, January 1st is coming up, and in here in it the is. south, that's kind of a tradition, is that you're supposed to eat black-eyed peas for good luck on the first of January. So if you got a ham bone for Christmas coming up, make sure you save that so you can make yes, your black-eyed and, peas. 
Everybody, make sure you get your black IPAs because, good Lord, we need all the good luck in 2021 <laughs> we can find. Yeah, I don't think enough people ate black eyed peas this year. That that, must be it. To me, that is much more important than wearing a mask. We got to make those black eyed peas for 2021. That's right. And if we can get Oregon's tough to get some of those things. I don't know. We've looked for them and we can't find them. Really? I may have to ship you some just so uh, yeah. so you have my, it. My southern wife would appreciate that. <laughs> so your wife is from the south? She is. So was that a, I mean, did you have to learn how to cook in a southern way since you're trained as a French chef? Well, I had to learn and depending on who you ask, I'm still learning how to cook in the family tradition way. So there, there's a few dishes, and this is where memory of perceived things, memories of things past, yes, can never be bested by current things. So yeah. I, 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 even though I admit to myself, I will own that her grandmother's chocolate fudge icing has kicked my hiney Every single time I've made it, <laughs> even if I got it right, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be as good as hers. And I'm okay with that. Right. Uh, there's a few other things that, that she, that she made that we've done and, you know, the efforts appreciated, but, but Mama Doris did it better and that's okay. That's how that goes. Well, I, I feel kind of the same way about my, my great grandmother's kind of the thing. Whenever she would come and visit us, she would always make a big pot of chicken and dumplings and a blackberry cobbler. And nice. there, there aren't very many chicken and dumplings that measure up to my grandma Baker's. But I will say my mother-in-law made some some chicken and dumplings before Thanksgiving. She was just craving them. So she made some. And hers are pretty dang close. I mean, I can't say they're as good as grandma Baker's because that's sacrilegious and grandma would be turning over in her grave. But, you know, those are pretty dang good chicken and dumplings. So here's an interesting thing. At least about dumplings and the Mason-Dixon line. If you are above the Mason-Dixon line, say Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, dumplings are more like biscuits that float on top of the chicken stew and they're sort of baked slash steamed all together. Mm-hmm. So the first time I had my mother-in-law's chicken and dumplings, I had this expectation because that's what it was. Right, yeah. No, 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 no. So Southern chicken dumplings are you take the dumpling mix and you roll it out mm-hmm. like a noodle. Yep. You cut them like noodles. And I thought, well, what the, this is okay. I mean, it was a phenomenal dish. Not what I expected, but now that's how we make them. At the time, my oldest was struggling with some, she was three or four. So it was chicken and ducklings, <laughs> which has stayed that? since then. So it's, it's awesome. Yeah. So, but the big difference there, so making a proper Southern chicken dumplings recipe, that's the thing. Because you're going to, you're going to, that Proustian moment of, oh, I remember when I was four at grandma's, that's, that's what happens. Now, I will tell you, I I heard a comedian, I think there were a couple of female, maybe the mommies or something like that. I can't remember now. But her, she was talking about how her husband just raved about his mother's pumpkin pie. And she had tried for years to emulate this pumpkin pie, had, had scoured recipe books trying to make the pumpkin pie the, the same way that his mother had made it. And I guess maybe, I don't know if his mother had passed or she just refused to give her the recipe. 
Uh, and then she said one year she just got lazy. She said, you know what? I, I just don't have time to make this pumpkin pie. So she took a, a can of Libby pumpkin pie mix, threw it in a pan, pie, pie, uh, pie crust and cooked it. And she, he said, she, he came back and he said, you did it. You finally recreated my mother's recipe. <laughs> oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. So, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe, uh, your, your, uh, wife's grandmother had the same type thing. <laughs> I, I don't think so. Probably not. One thing on your list that we didn't mention, two things, um, herb stems. Yeah. So things like, um, cilantro, cilantro is big for you. Is long, pretty much the entire stem, as long as it's clean and free of dirt and not the little root end, use up the whole stem. Okay. Put in your guacamole. If you're picking the leaves of, of uh, say, sage or rosemary or thyme, and the end of it's still kind of green and tender, chop it up. If the end is woody, if the stem is woody, and you're saying, wow, I couldn't even hardly chop this, well, then you don't want to eat that. Save that. So the, we're, we're back to this sort of, do you have enough stuff to make a stock? Is this something that you would do? There, there, There's lots of ways to utilize the flavor in the stem. There isn't a lot there, but there's some there. If you're growing your own thyme, then put it back in the compost because you've got mm -hmm. the whole other pot. But from flavor utility, the add it to, the, add it to a stock. Uh, you can make infused oils with it, which is just more ingredients and more stuff, which may not be a solution to a problem, but it isn't immediately garbage. There's something to be done with it. Uh, and the other one was cauliflower. We talked about broccoli. So the, the cauliflower is a really, it's, it's much maligned and it is a fascinating vegetable. If you cut it in planks and leave the, leave the stem end on, say half inch planks, salt it about five minutes before you're gonna cook it. And then in either your bacon fat or butter, cook it low and slow and caramelize it, mm -hmm. I mean, seriously, get some deep color on there. Turn it over, do the same thing. The caramel on that, you, you will, you'll say, how did this cauliflower get all this flavor? Where did this come from? Wow. The flavor in cauliflower is astonishing. We just never do anything about it because we steam it and serve it with cheese sauce. Or yeah, exactly. Because it it's like a vehicle for some other sauce that you put on yeah. it. Yeah. Well, try caramelizing it. And okay. then now you can do caramelized bits in a pasta dish with so the caramel and the tomatoes and a broth base with some penne. <laughs> that sounds great. Man, that's an, and I've discovered it almost on accident. Caramelized cauliflower and coconut milk or coconut. Mm -hmm. It's a great flavor combination. The inside part, the core. It's the same thing like the broccoli. It's got a cellulose outside, but the inside part's good. It's, it's, the inside of cauliflower isn't as grand as the florets, but you can saute it into as a veg, diced up veg into pasta, put it into risotto. It isn't immediately garbage, mm -hmm. but it requires thinking outside of the words on the page. Okay. Yeah, because you don't see a lot of recipes that say use the inside guts of the stem of the cauliflower plant. You probably see exactly zero. <laughs> yeah. 
maybe that can be in your next cookbook. <laughs> uh, I was thinking is if it's in this one or not. And it, it, I don't know. It might be. Well, speaking of the cookbook, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about the cookbook that you came out with earlier this year? Well, yes, I'd be happy to. It's called Cooking for Comfort, One Pot Meals You Can Make. And uh, so one of the things Rachel and I have been talking about is first principles. And one of the first principles in, in cooking from a recipe is that you should get something from that for your brain as much as you get something from that for your tummy. And these recipes are a list of ingredients. Anybody can do a list of ingredients. The, the, the money is in the procedure. And so as you go through my procedures, I'm going to give you skills of cooking, what to look for, what to listen for, what to smell for, because cooking is a multi-sense activity. The, you'll hear in hot pans, the sound of the food in the hot pan is different than the sound of the food in the cold pan. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you start low and it goes high. When you hear this high, high sizzle, when you learn to hear that, say, oh boy, something's about to happen. And usually the thing is going to happen is burn. So you have to mm -hmm. get it before that happens. Um, how to use your nose to tell you when to do the next step. Uh, and I have a, a, a blog page. For you who are interested in seeing, uh, do I write like I speak? And can you learn from what it is I write down? You can download the PDF of the introduction, which explains a lot about the philosophy of learning the basis of cooking. And once you have the basics of cooking, then you can do what your grandmother did and see a room full of ingredients to say, I know exactly what I'm going to do. Now, part of learning to do that, like also learning to carve wood, learning to paint, is when you got to do it. You can't learn to carve wood if you do it four times a year. And understanding your ingredients. If you've never used fresh herbs ever once, making the wrong choice can really have an impact on what you end up serving the people. So that's... Part of cooking is cooking. It's just how that part goes. Um, but once you have an understanding of what the ingredients are and an understanding of how to use your heat and your ingredients and when to add these things, which is what you can learn from my cookbook, now you don't need the recipes on the page. You have this knowledge. You can go do this stuff. Well, if folks want to get your book, where is the best place for them to do that? Well, it's either on Amazon or there's a link on the show note on the show notes page. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you kind of uh, get in that routine of saying that. I sure do. Uh, the blog post is culinarylibertarian.com slash cooking for comfort. Mm -hmm. And you can order it from there. You can download and read the PDF from there. And there's a few photos from readers submitted dishes. Great. So what is the, where's the best place for folks to find all of your stuff? Uh, everything is at culinarylibertarian.com. Perfect. And you can get the podcast, the book, the, I have lots of recipes. Most of them are baking and the same thing applies with learning how to do baking. You can learn to make muffins and biscuits and then build on that skill because what's important to me is you get some skills in your, 
in your nose and ears and fingertips so that you feel that you can do this. So no longer will you say, I told you I can't bake. Fui, you can bake. Yeah. You just haven't found the guy who's written the recipe for you to succeed. And you actually have a, a free muffin cookbook, don't you? I do have a free muffin cookbook. And that is, I don't know what the link to that is. I'll have to send that to you. Oh my goodness, Dan, you're falling down on the job here. Yeah, I am falling down on the job. <laughs> you should make it easy. Culinarylibertarian.com slash muffins. I should. Put you a pretty link out there for that. I'll send I'll I'll send you. I think it's uh I, I don't know. I don't even want to think about it. I have to I'll send it to you. No worries. I'll put links to your blog. I'll put links to the episode or the culinarylibertarian.com, put links to your book, and then put a link to the episode that we talked about today on first principles for folks that want to come out and go out and listen to that on the show notes for today's episode. And thank you once again, Dan. I, I think you've given us some good uh not to be a terrible pun, but good food for thought <laughs> on on what to do with these uh, these things that normally we would throw away. So, well, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Have a great evening, Dan. You too. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll have the link to the Cooking for Comfort blog post on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 127 as well as a link to Radish, the subscription recipe service with real recipes for kids to learn to cook. Please share this episode on your social media and like it when you see it there. Also, head over to Rachel's Just at Liberty page to listen to more of her interviews. Please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.